Welcome to The Rift. This is your host, Ian Foster. Today's guest is Doug Walrath. He's the director of Gnomes, Northwestern Alaska Career and Technical Education Center. Uh, they're a vocational school in Nome that services Gnomes and surrounding villages, teenage population, in an effort to provide vocational training, um, career enlightenment about what kind of career options are available, um, and their goal is to give people, kids as much opportunity to get as many certifications and experience as possible to ha- better direct their future plans towards uh, you know, a career path. Doug came up to Nome at the same time that I did. Um, he came up to Nome with a PhD, and um, he came up to Nome. Well, we'll get. I, I don't want to take his story away from him, but he's one of the more dynamic people that I've ever met. He's um, a man's man. He regularly goes hunting. He goes off into the woods. He's done that his whole life, um, and he's also an academic. He interfaces with uh, governmental officials on every level. Um, mostly they're funded by grants and so Doug is the guy presenting information statistics helping people understand the value of the program uh, that they have he's also been the person that hired me at various times to moonlight in various capacities I've been an instructor out at NACTEC I've been a house parent and NACTEC I've worked in all sorts of different boarding schools for troubled youth I've worked as a foster parent I've, I've seen a lot of different ways you can interact or programs can be put together and NACTEC is, is an awesome program. I've seen, I know all the people there, I've seen the inside and the outsides of that programs and I have no problem saying unequivocally that this program is one of the best programs in the United States of America at what they do. I'm very proud to be associated with them and I'm really happy that um, Doug took some time out of his busy schedule to talk with me. So without further ado, Doug Walrath. It is Monopoly, but it's Christmas themed, so all the all the spaces are different other than railroads. The four midpoints you've got reindeer and rather than pass go you pass ho 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 and rather than go to jail you go to be naughty and <laughs> and uh, you got sugar plums and Christmas trees and all this other stuff. Well ended up being a three-hour game. We started around seven. We were going on ten. By the time we finished, I was like, oh, "Monopoly's no joke." <clears throat> Monopoly's and Monopoly's one of the best ways you can lose friends. You know, a couple of competitive people. Hey, like, parent, if you want to understand our current politics, like do nothing other than look at Monopoly. Like how we play Monopoly with each other. It's like, okay, I get how life works. You know. You know, you say that and. My six-year-old daughter, because my mom lent her money in a time of need, which is illegal, which is against the rules. Oh, in the in the independent nation of Walrath. No, written rules. Okay. You can, in at least in Christmas Opoly. I don't know okay. Monopoly, but you oh. cannot lend money oh, gotcha. okay. to another. Money can only be lent from the bank. Okay. Well, my mom pulled the elder card, and because I didn't <clears throat> read all of the rules and then hear it. They got a, a one-time exemption, so my daughter went on to her side and traded, so it ended up being a, 
a two on one. And then, yeah, then I got competitive. So I'm like, okay, you, you want to pair up on me. And it's like a, a oh, six, yeah. six year old and a 72 year yeah. old. But yeah, no mercy, man. No quarter at that point. And I took them all. <laughs> <laughs> well done, sir. Well, at that point, I mean, I was compassionate for my daughter and I was like, all right, you guys are going to cheat. All right, no old part now. I'm going to start loading up. They're not houses and hotels. They're presents and Christmas trees that go on. So I'm going to start loading presents up at my property. So <laughs> my mom's one for uh, having to having to get retail price on whatever she bought. She wants it for less than, but even when she has to pay up, no, it's worth $250. I'm going to get $250 or I'm not going to give it to you. I'm like, fine. Don't give it to me. I don't care. <laughs> mortgage it. You're going to pay 10% more to take it out of his mortgage later on. <laughs> it's funny how like people's real business strategy in life applies to Monopoly, you know? Absolutely. Because <laughs> my mom shops at Goodwill and Rummage Sales. She is in it for the deal. She doesn't need it. But if she can get the deal, oh, she walks yeah. out. So she's buying the same way and trying to get full value for hers and Hopping over my daughter. No, don't do that. That's a bad deal. It's like, it's not your deal. It's her deal. She's initiating the deal. <laughs> oh, yeah. I grew up on Saturdays going to garage sales, and I'm still trying to overcome that. <laughs> still we did the same to thing. We had a flea market in the little town we went to in the summertime. And I don't know if they had that once a month. or I think it was once a month we went in. And that was, you know, it was all about the deal. We go to auctions. You know, my mom would have us sit up front and she'd always tell us the auctioneer can't get a bid. She wasn't afraid to have <clears throat> use her kids and say, just say a quarter, just say a quarter. We'd get, I remember getting blinds for a house for a quarter and I was eight years old. What do I need blinds for a house for? And then take over to our neighbor and sell to them for a dollar and made 75 cents. Okay. Well, that's a good monopoly. <laughs> <Yo>. <laughs> <clears throat> well, most of my voice has returned, but it's been fully one week, I guess, as since, of this, since the this incident. After, yeah, well, since it was the, three, three to six on Friday night, and then we went from one to five with the little guys wrestling on Saturday, and then the one to four championship was six to seven, so we get eight hours of just... Barking. We yeah. had such a pile of kids. We had four mats going. There were three of us coaching at some time, but we had wrestlers on all four mats. And Charlie Cross, varsity coach, had to come down and hop on and help out too because there's just, I'd never done one before. And I'm like, okay, how's this work? I'm thinking, coach a kid, mat, walk off, go see what's happening. And I was like, never leave the mat, no opportunity. You're either up or you're on deck. Now, that wasn't the bush brawl, though, right? That was in that was the bush brawl. That was the bush brawl? Yep. And that was here or in Cots? Cots. Okay. They wrestled in uh, in Nolan the weekend before. Okay. And then Cots abuse. And that's it for the, the little guys. They practice for eight weeks, and they get those two, two opportunities. <clears throat> Dude, that's crazy. 
you practice for that long just to have two shots of glory. It's amazing though. The little Schaefers they come along in a hurry. Yeah. To to see them, you know, develop the the way they have and and apply what you teach them. They, they were doing it. They were making it happen. <laughs> That's awesome. So, some go out there and you know get a little shy, and you can see you get rolled over. It's like oh. I'm done. <laughs> Even some of them take him down. You're always like, you know, fight to your belly, get up to your base, and they go down and they're on their side, and without any force of the opponent, go like this, and just roll onto their back. <laughs> oh, one of the funniest get things. Off is, your back. Yeah. Well, it's funny. Like one of the funniest things watching jujitsu guys go against wrestlers, like just in in training. Because wrestlers, they hate being on their back. They're like turtles. They're like, no, yeah, you know. Yeah. But jujitsu guys, like, they get taken to their back, and then the wrestlers they pin them, and then they don't know what to do after that because wrestlers like, I got you, and jujitsu's like, what are you, what are you doing? And they're just like working their angles and working their limbs and everything. Anyway, it's funny. Like wrestler, I wrestle wrestlers brand new in jujitsu. You know, you'll go down to the mat. And they'll immediately try to establish position on top. And then you roll them in ways that they're not used to. And then they get on their back and they don't want to be on their back. And so they turn to their stomach and then all of a sudden they, they're getting choked oh, out. sure. And, you know, because they give up everything at that point. Yeah, I know nothing like, about jujitsu. You can't choke people out. Yep. But in jujitsu, it's like, that's my go-to. Yeah. <laughs> so like wrestling. The rear naked hold. Yeah. Yeah, rear naked choke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, so anyway, it's funny. That's that's a funny thing. But yeah, kids, new kids in wrestling, I bet that's really rewarding because that's such a fundamental skill. Like if people have that confidence, guy, especially guys, they have that confidence that I can handle myself. If it goes to the ground and all fights do, boom. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a fundamental confidence that's there that you can't replace it with good grades. You can't replace it with like prowess at anything else other than physical hand-to-hand -hand combat. You know? I remember my brother telling it, well, the guy he went to school with, and he was a really good wrestler. And, you know, back then, things were settled differently. It was a fight. Nobody pulled out a gun or anything like that. Mm -hmm. You know, they'd go at it, and he'd take the guy to the ground, hold him down, but he wasn't a fighter. He'd know what to do. It was like, bring him down, I can pin you. Never swung at anybody in his life and didn't know what to do. Yeah. And then let him back up and then got beat up. It's like, well, yeah. I got the takedown, I got you on your back. And then I got two black eyes. Yeah. Yeah, that's the funny thing about wrestling. Like, um, well, and just knowing how to handle yourself. There are certain situations that I've talked a lot with. I, I've trained with, with guys that are active fighters and, um, and I fought a couple of times. So I've had that conversation a lot with, with guys. And the guys that really know how to handle themselves are not guys pushing for a fight. The guys that are pushing for the fights are the guys that have something to prove. And those are the guys that typically don't train. Maybe they've gone for a month or something, learned a, a thing or two. But those guys, yeah, you can, there's things that you can do just to hold them down, just to, I mean, just to choke them out. And that stuff, when you choke somebody out, as long as you let off, right, when they go unconscious, unconscious, they're, they're out for a few seconds. There's no lasting repercussions to that. There's no marks left on the body. There's, you know, you, and you also do a psychological reset of the people. My buddy, my buddy did that to my dog one time because my dog was just, he was being belligerent towards another dog and we couldn't get him to just stop. And I didn't know this, but my buddy just went, choked him out. 
and which I don't recommend doing to dogs. And I was a little bit, we had words afterward because it's like, come on. But the point of the story is, uh, you know, as, as soon as, you know, he went limp, let off, coaxed him back, coaxed him back awake, which is what our bodies do naturally. And then, um, dog woke up and total psychological reset. Like he wasn't belligerent. He wasn't barking at the dog next door. Like he had been nothing had changed that the other dog was still there. And then all of a sudden the dog was just fine. It was really weird. What's going on? Yeah. What world am I in? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, not recommended, but if somebody's coming at you and, and I know your position, you don't have to validate or deny or, or disagree or anything with any of those tactics. Don't try these at home. I'm, yep. I'm a trained professional. Yep. We're not advocating. But that being said, hey, I um, thank you for the beverage that you brought me. Yep. I brought you, I found some Slucy merch. Remember back when I was going to be a reality TV yeah, star? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I made my own t-shirt line. So I have a bunch of these. And I know you have some ladies in your life. Yeah. You have a mother, you have a daughter, <laughs> yep. don't you? Yeah, and pink is her pink is okay. her only color. So let's just much. figure out sizes. This is what I got. I also got one, if you have one of them that wants something a little little darker. We got a, <laughs> this is still a female cut shirt, but it's gold, gold digger. And you can have the honor of <clears throat> my logo being on the back of your, the ladies in your life. You see the little bearded Ian... Slucy. Oh, okay. All that's, right. That's, well, that's my branding. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> it was a lot of fun making. What do you, What do you got for sizes? Uh, I got I got all I got large, medium, small. Here's a large. So, just depending on what you got, they're um, they're they're cut. You know, female cuts. So yeah. They kind of go in on the sides. Um, that's a small. Probably kiddos are small. Yep. So take that one. What's that? A small. That's a small. Okay, and then I got a medium here. This is a medium. This is a large. Um, so I like uh, my girlfriend Jenny. She would probably wear a small to a medium. A medium would probably be slightly loose. Um, if I'd say anyway, I, I gave a a large shirt to an elderly lady one time and but she was fairly slender but she probably weighed 140 150 and it fit very baggy on her it, what was it what size a large a large so i don't know what size your mother would wear but i would say probably you know she's probably a large xl but okay. do you have an xl or not i don't i just have small medium large so you can try a large and then yeah. it, you can do something else with it if yeah i don't i don't size. have i like that one but i don't have any one of the medium sure. size that i am sorry I know, because I would have. Well, you can have it for when they grow into it, if you'd like. I can do that. Keep it on the girl one way or the other. I mean, yeah. that to me, this is a this is an ideal Christmas present. <laughs> <laughs> what are you saying? Well, I'm from well, home, they dig for gold. Wait, I don't know. What are you saying? No, no, no. That's one of those grenade presents. <laughs> it's, so it's one of those presents, like, it's really thoughtful. They say, thank you. But you're like, that was kind of big. <laughs> That was kind of a dig, honey. <laughs> no, Whatever. that's awesome. Whoever you give it to. Yeah. Anyway, uh, for those listening, um, I have these pink shirts. They're styled after the I Love Lucy logo, but they say I Love Slucy. That was my first gold dredge that I made into a brand as I was uh, becoming famous on a reality show. Anyway, but then the other shirt is a black one that says Gold Digger on the front. So Can't go wrong. Yeah. Anyway, cool, man. Um, 
I've always wanted to give you gold, you know, but just based on your position, I don't want anybody to think anything weird about that. You know what I mean? Gold is good. All right. Yeah. No, I mean like a, a token of my appreciation. If, if there's no conflict with that, I would love to do that for you. If it's, I thought I already gave yeah, your organization yeah, a picture. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. After, after building the Solicita, mm -hmm. the little gold thing for each. Yeah. Guys are stoked too, you know, yeah, awesome. cause it's, you know, it's from the ground here for us workforce development training. If it's a natural resource development strand. So it, it flows and you know, Pink is good too, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's the weird thing about gold is that it's it's money, but it's also, uh, you know, it, it's also an intangible up here. Um, I've I've given gold to a lot of different people just for the symbolism of it, and it has actual value because it's gold. You know, it's not like a flower or something. But you think of it for no one too, though. I mean, that it's representative of the community. We we mm -hmm. wouldn't be here. No one wouldn't be here mm -hmm. without that. So yeah. it's like. I don't know. Yeah, well, and it's and still a mining like, community. Like when you think about where money actually comes from, that's it's gold. Yeah. It's it's gravel. I mean, our main our our main thing is gravel these days. I mean, there's still a lot of people mining gold, but gravel is also considered mining, and that's our main export. That's our main production up here, and everything. A lot of the other things are just services, but yeah, interesting. Yeah. Well, I'm telling the guy that actually knows a lot more than I do. You're the PhD. You're the only PhD in the room. And, um, you know, I heard that one time <laughs> they said, you know, the acronym, the letters, you know, for, you know, because I have a bachelor's of science, so it's a, it's a BS degree, right? Yep. And then um, you can get a master's in science, which is your MS degree, and then you can get a PhD. And then, um, anyway, I heard somebody say that those acronyms mean um, bullsh, morsh. <laughs> And then piled higher. Uh, there you go. <laughs> I, I have never heard that one, but I knew where you were going with it. And who knows? Maybe there's an element of truth, yeah, yeah. you know, to that. What do they say about uh, numbers? You know me. I'm a numbers guy. You know, use the numbers to tell a story, but, you know, numbers lie, liars use numbers, whatever. I, I, you know, well, lies, yeah. lies, damn lies, statistics. I think yeah. that's how Mark yeah. Twain put it. Um, so thank you for coming. Uh, thanks for meeting me out here at 10 o'clock in the morning when the sun hasn't even broken yet it's, in the it's, Arctic. It's, it's coming. I it's can trying. see it on the horizon. <laughs> it's trying. Maybe it won't show up today. You never know. A lot of things are broken these days. Maybe the sun won't rise either. Um, <clears throat> Victor Hugo said something like that in Les Miserables. It was a really interesting stanza. We talked about how this, it was a really cloudy day. This is total aside. but And one of his characters said, you know, that... that the sun's bankrupt. It's it's not even come up today. It's anyway. Um, I'll probably edit that part out. You, to to that point though, just I mean, last week one of the teachers came out morning and had whatever do and said, "You got to look outside. The sunrise is spectacular." You know, and one of the things about living this far north, the as as we get closer, you know, to the to the winter equinox and the sun's lower on the horizon <clears throat> are those spectacular sunrises and mm -hmm. sunsets. One of the favorite pictures I have, um, I was out, we were out hunting. My son was what, maybe a year and a half old and I'm holding binoculars and little boy wanting to be like his daddy had made himself his own binoculars out of two toilet paper tubes. <laughs> 
that were taped <laughs> together and we're side by side in our camo and it's whatever it's december or something so it's the, sh the shortest days of the year and you got snow on the background with tundra colors and then the sun as it's setting behind the colors in the sky are like there were purple hues in blue that you can only see from being this far north when the sun is just low on the horizon like that it does it and people looked at that picture and they're like that's an awesome picture you know whatever about what you did to photoshop it and i'm like i I don't, you don't I don't to. Photoshop anything. <clears throat> I don't even believe in like adding filters to pay. I was like, that's, that's, that's it. That's no, mm -hmm. well, how is that possible? It's purple. The sky's not purple. It's like, well, yeah, maybe places is not to our neck like, of the woods. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, when it's limited sunlight, boom, that's, those are some of the things that I like just to glance out the window to see the sunrise and the sunset. So enjoy the little things no absolutely it's interesting like i've um one of my most popular posts on instagram now is a just a quick photo i took I, i'm in the middle of a remodel and i looked out the window and we had a sunrise happening and i just took a picture and then all of a sudden everybody loved it and it, it was really interesting to see that because the picture wasn't even good compared to what the reality was and we get these sunrises and sunsets that are longer than other places I remember being in Nicaragua a few years ago and um, with Zane. You remember Zane? Mm -hmm. So we went down there and we rented this little hut on this little little corn island. It's this island off the east coast of Nicaragua. Anyway, the sunsets happen, sunrises happen like that. They're just very quick. And so I happened to wake up right as the sun rising at like five o'clock in the morning, which is an ungodly hour for me. And but I I noticed it and I had the wherewithal to grab my camera, snap, and fall back asleep. But that sunrise only lasted two three minutes you know it's just so fast but up here we have these sunrises and sunsets that last a half hour sometimes it's just they, they the decline is so slow and and i'm not sure what that has to do with our place in the universe but we get very unique circumstances up here that i've never seen anywhere else well yeah i mean look at december the yeah. it the sun comes up. It is a sunrise and a sunset. It's well, well, which is merciful to me. I mean, I, like five o'clock sunrises, if they happen like that everywhere, I would never see a sunrise <laughs> by choice, you know. But yeah, 10, 10, 10 30 sunrise. That's merciful. That's great. Fits my lifestyle. You can sleep in, still feel like you're getting something done. Yep. 10 30 in the morning. Yep. No, I'm, we're, at. we're opposites in that, you know, because I'm. I'm a farm boy from Wisconsin. We're, you know, we're up in the morning milking cows and out bow hunting and you're always out in the dark, mm -hmm. you know, so the woods come into life, you know, the animals start making their first noise, the insects, and then it starts getting like, I, I always love that about just being out in the woods that a new day is coming and you get to see it from the very beginning. Yeah, that's awesome. You may not see the tail. No, 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 it's not that I don't appreciate a good morning. I do. There's a, there's a bigger that goes that happens in the morning. I just don't make, like making the sacrifice to make that happen um, unless I'm, I'm forced to do that. That's why Alaska's great. Yeah. And that's the point I'm getting to. Um, so we kind of just jumped into it. Uh, I'm here with Doug Walrath. He's the director of NACTEC, the Northwestern Alaska Career and Technical Education Center. Um, can you talk about what you do? What does NACTEC do? Just sure. Brief overview. Sure. So briefly, uh, NACTEC is what's termed a regional tra training center in Alaska. There's a number of re regional training centers uh, throughout the rural parts of the state. So it provides an opportunity of kids that are in 
rural or really remote areas of the state to have the opportunity to explore career and technical education training, formerly known as vocational education. You know, but students out here and in this region, you know, we're in a region um, that here is about the size of the state of West Virginia. So, you know, to put that in perspective for folks listening, I believe I read West Virginia has something like 1.8 million people. Our region, there's 10,000 people in that same little footprint. So all, all of our students come, well, with the exception here at Gnome Belts High School. So Gnome's got 3,000 people in it. The outlying villages are 200 to six, 700 people fly in for vocational training in a, in a residential setting. So that's kind of unique. Students leave school for two weeks at a time and come in for anything from construction training to healthcare, driver education training, Arctic survival, small engines training, welding, a whole array of trainings. Uh, for two weeks at a time, it gives them about the equivalent of a quarter's worth of instruction uh, in a regular school schedule. Um, but it provides an opportunity to explore training that simply doesn't exist otherwise in the villages. It's, it's too expensive. There's not enough teachers. The population size is too small in the villages for just a whole number of reasons. So they, they come here and it connects them. Uh, with the gnome, you know, gnome's gnome's a hub, so we got a, a hub of gnome and hub and spoke concept out to the villages, and that two-way traffic. Students are flying in. Uh, the lifeblood of rural Alaska is is aviation, uh, coming to and fro. Uh, nothing's located by by road system other than one one village, seventy-five miles up the road that we can only get to in the summertime. So. Uh, it provides for students of Bering Strait School District, the 15 villages around Nome and Nome Belts High School, opportunities in, in career and technical education that simply won't exist uh, without having a program like NACTIC here. That's yeah. a short and sweet of it. Yeah, absolutely. It's so interesting to hear you. I've, you know, I've, we've both been up here for 10 years. Um, we obviously took very different paths once we got here, but we've both been up here for 10 years. It's it's so interesting to to step back and just look at what you just said. I mean, we live in a region that's the size of West Virginia, within a state that's the size logistically. It it stretches from Florida to North Dakota and from Carolina all the way to almost California if you include the chain. Like that's the size of Alaska. Now it's only I think a fifth of the contiguous yep. United States um, from a square mile standpoint, but from a you know, distance standpoint, that's what we're looking at. And so we're in the West Virginia portion of, <laughs> of, of, of I mean, size, size wise in, uh, in Alaska. And then logistically, how do we actually make that happen? And a lot of people think, wait, you can't drive to where you are. And you know, you've answered these questions. You go to low 48 and what you can't drive there. <laughs> you get that and you yep. have to explain the story and yeah, it's, we're isolated and yeah, you know, well, you can get a dog sled there. Or you can take a barge. And it's, it's so interesting to look, at what NACTEC is within the context of where we are, you know, and, and what it's done. When you first got up to NACTEC, um, did you have a 10 year plan at that point? We've talked a lot about vision, goals, things like that over the years. Yep. Um, and we have a little bit different strategy, but it's essentially the same. Like we dream big and then we, yep. we put some action steps together. But um, were you thinking this was a 10 year plan? Was this a five year plan? Alaska was on my horizon from high school. Um, I, I remember an, an English writing assignment. We actually had to write our obituary. 
and as a farm boy that got up every morning and I ran a trap line and hunted and fished and did all that, Alaska was the last frontier. That's where yeah. I wanted to go. Yeah. So my obituary in high school was something to the effect that Doug Walrath was out walking his trap line and stepped into a bear trap and got mauled by a grizzly. <laughs> Only, only in high school, you think like that. But yet at the time, I'm, I'm sure, like, in my mind, you grew up on a farm, you know, we didn't go to the store for much. We raised, you know, we had a huge garden. We we butchered, we got eggs from chickens, we butchered pigs, we butchered beef. So you really understand the cycle of life when it's there. When you raise something, you know, and as a kid, that's your pet growing up. But at the end of it, you know, your parents, they teach, you know, like, you know, you're raising it because it's food to, to go onto the table. So whether we go hunt to do that or we butcher, it's there. But I, I guess for me, when you're a teenager, then your your mind is thinking different, whatever. That represented, no, there's an end for all of us. And my end was met in the way that I lived my life, at least when I was 17 yeah you know years old so it, it was there and that's where i wanted to go so i joined the military out of high school and getting stationed up here was was on my horizon but it didn't go that way i went to germany it was west germany at that time so i was stationed in west germany in 80 88 uh, to 91 so it was a dynamic time to be there. Absolutely. The fall of the wall occurred in That's Haiti. Crazy. You yeah. live history and you see it with East Germans pouring into West Germany. And about the time I think I'm going to get out in 1990, August, well, August 2nd, 1990, I still remember, you know, Saddam Hussein and the Iraqi forces invade Kuwait. And I read a Stars and Stripes magazine and all of a sudden, you know, the military announces there's no... No ETSs, no PCSs, and a term to service or permanent change station. Wherever you are, boom, that's where you're staying. That was August. Mm -hmm. By December, we're in Saudi Arabia. By January, we're in Iraq. <laughs> By February, we're in Kuwait. You know, life, life changes. All this happens in a flurry. And, you know, that, that experience shaped me. I thought at the time, maybe I'd do... Years. Maybe I get an assignment in Alaska, but I was like, yeah, let's let's get out, let's explore something else. So I went into education, and I I got a, a four year degree, a BS degree in technology education uh, from the University of Wisconsin, still with my eye on Alaska. So I headed west to Idaho to do my student teaching on my way to Alaska, and all I ever heard of or knew of Idaho, probably like others, potatoes. You know, that's what you hear. Mm -hmm. Then I get there and I'm like, oh my God, this is a beautiful state. What part of Idaho are you in? Um, South Central, um, Haley, uh, okay. Ketchum Sun Valley is a ski mm -hmm. resort area yeah, right yeah. off the road. But I mean, it's yeah. just, it is gorgeous. Sawtooth National Forest, uh, a little bit north of there. And fell in love with the place and never thought I would leave until opportunities aligned. And well, that was another decade later, uh -huh. you know, that eventually brought me this way. So I saw a job posting. Um, for this thing called MacTech, and I looked at it as opposed to every other job post. I thought, "Wow, that's fascinating." You would never get bored in a program like that because the job duties—they they were so lengthy. I don't even remember what they. When all did were. you start looking for it? I, I know at the time you were studying for your PhD, or is this after? I had finished. <clears throat> so, so, so along the journey 
uh, while I was teaching middle school. Um, I, I taught with a wonderful individual. I was very fortunate as a new teacher. He was a leader in, in tech ed in the field, uh, Brad Thody and his wife, Terry Thody. They had a technology education program, middle school and elementary. And for me, an elementary was never on my horizon, but experiencing that, I really saw how, how dynamic it was. And, and the approach, it was, it was project-based. It explored all these different areas. And kids were just, they loved, you know. When I grew up, it was industrial arts. We went to the shop, we built some projects. It was cool, it was hands-on, but it wasn't dynamic, you know, like this was. So I did that and their whole approach was, you know, I remember Brad saying, you can engage kids, you know, uh, effectively, you know, th three ways. So space, space was one, dinosaurs was another, and ghost was the other. So <laughs> dinosaurs are extinct, but kids love it. They'll talk about yeah. it. Ghost is this, you know, wild unknown. Once again, they're excited about it. But space was this great thematic organizer to bring science, technology, engineering, and math all, all the life. So in the course of learning from him and getting, you know, turned on to this, we, we had a huge, like a, a 12 room facility. And, and we had we had space station simulators, like, I don't know, 800 pounds. They hovered on, on air bearings. Um, we had a vertical truss system that went up to a Mars landscape with, with red landscaping rock and a remote control, like little RC cars with a robotic arm. You'd scoop up and look for life on Mars, which for us were little seashells and stuff like that. Well, that whole thing, uh, was connected and inspired also by Barbara Morgan, uh, was a teacher from Idaho. She was the backup uh, to the teacher in space program behind Krista McAuliffe and became an, an astronaut with NASA and, and went on to fly in missions. So I, I met her in, in Houston at a NASA educational workshop and just was inspired by her path and what she did and said, man, that'd be cool. I would love to do that someday. Lo and behold, NASA opened up an educator astronaut position because what Barb did, you know, they learned like, okay, you got, but prior to that, you had mission specialists and you had your pilots, you know, where was an educator fit? Well, they realized, you know, Barb could really reach out to students, you know, and inspire them. So they came up with this EAMS, educator astronaut mission specialist. So, you know, throwing my hat in the ring, I thought, why not try this too, you know, because I've always enjoyed trying different challenges and going after things in life. And, and lo and behold, from initial three or 4,000 applications, my application was one of the final hundred that got selected. So I went down to Johnson Space Center in 2003, interviewed, and found out that I have a deformed cornea on my left eye. So I don't know, 30% of people are so good medical disqualifications but they always say you know don't don't let that you know ruin it for you the future of, of applying or you know dream of doing so again so the cycles were like every five years one of the things i learned is that a lot of people applying had background had phds had research backgrounds of some sort and really any sort you know quantitative qualitative you know how to do research so that was 2003, I think it was 2005, an opportunity came uh, where I picked up my master's degree at Utah State to go into a doctoral fellowship. Uh, uh, and it was the National Center of Engineering and Tech Ed. Um, so jumped at that thinking, hey, this window of opportunity is perfect. I can do this, finish my PhD in three years, NASA will open up the next round, I'll apply again, boom, I'll be an astronaut.
maybe. Yeah. So did that, did the PhD, applied to NASA, also applied to a couple of universities. Um, and I, and I had, I had job offers at two universities, but I let them know, like my dream was to be an astronaut. Like I, I wanted to go to NASA. I want to go to space and, and do that whole thing. And they were like, well, we're not hiring you like to go be an astronaut. And I'm thinking that's a feather in the cap to the university. Like one of your faculty go off and do that and, and come back. So just hearing that, it just, uh, I had a little, I, I'm a gut feel person. I follow my gut and I was like, it just didn't seem right. So I declined my, uh, two university job offers <laughs> and I just, I, I went on a little walkabout for a month. I headed out to the Idaho wilderness, the farm boy and me had to explore one last time. Uh, threw a bow on my shoulder, a backpack, a video camera on my hip, and I went solo for a month, um, put on like 380 miles, just, it was, it was awesome, like connecting. I, I, later, later, like, I don't know, five, seven years later, I heard about this gap year thing, like people graduate, they say go out, do something, then go to work, and I was like, Man, I was doing the gap year before. The gap year was cool. Well, you're doing the gap year like after you'd done everything. You know, the gap year was, was you know, at, between high school and college. And you did it like after all of the college and a career. You, know, I was, you, had, a, you had a career in the military. Yeah, I was 39. Yeah. So I was going on 40. And really, there was a, there was a voice in the back of my head. Um, my best friend growing up, uh, his dad. It's funny how when you grow up. His dad went in the military when he was out of high school. So I remember I had signed up and he was telling me all these stories. And I'm like, that guy's crazy, man. I've never, you know, he went in and did crazy stuff and lost rank and did all these other things. Had a good time. Enjoyed the military, but not the route of like putting a few bucks away or doing anything. So I'd laugh at his stories. I'm like, you know, he, yeah, that's crazy. And then what he'd say like five, seven years later, I'm like, huh. That was kind of true, what he said. And then there was something else he said, and I laughed, he's crazy again, you know. And then at one point, he said he had finished, he had an overhead garage door business, and he retired, and he wanted to go off hunting. And he said, you know what, Doug, he said, we got this whole thing wrong with kids where we tell them, go through high school, go to college, get a job, do all this, you know, set aside your retirement money and do what you want, you know, when you retire. He said, everything I want to do I want to go elk hunting. I want to be in the mountains. I'm too damn old to do that now. My knees won't hold up. I can't do that. He's like, what we should be telling kids, and, and I don't believe in this philosophy to share with students, but he said, we should tell them after they graduate, go travel, explore the world, do whatever you want, rack up debt, and then go to college afterwards, and then work the rest of your life paying off the debt that you do all those things when you're young. And I laughed too. I'm like, man, he's crazy. And then I started thinking, well, everything he said five to seven, 10 years later, I'm like, he was right. So I'm like, you know what? I bet you he's going to be right on this one too. My knees are going to be bad. I enjoy the mountains, the outdoors and doing that. It wasn't a gap year, but I'm going to take this time and I'm going to go do that. And then I got the college degree. I got the work experience. I'll I'll get back into it after that. It it, it it was it was it was weird. I mean, to spend uh, a month by yourself, like we're having a conversation here, mm -hmm. just imagine going to wherever and not speaking. 
No, absolutely. It's. <clears throat> I was talking with uh, Kevin yesterday, and uh, I had a headset in, and he was like, "Is it weird hearing yourself talk?" I was like, "No, I hear myself talk constantly. <laughs> I talk to myself. I talk to my dog. Like, no, that's the most normal voice that I hear." The weird thing comes in when you hear other voices. That's that's when you have a problem. Yeah. So I haven't heard any other voices. Um, that gap year is such an interesting thing, and it, um, and it's we talk about the gap year between high school and college, which I I totally recommend. But there's also I want to say Carl Rogers, he's a famous psychologist. He he talked about how kids shouldn't even go to college before they're thirty. He was a proponent of that, and I may be wrong on the, the psychologist, but it's a it's yep. a main yep. psychologist founding father anyway um and the reason for that i look at how i learn as a 30 well now almost 40 year old and how i've learned as an adult instead of in my 20s and i honestly wish i could go back and redo my bachelor's degree because i'm relearning a lot of these things that i didn't actually retain at the time because i didn't have the context within which to retain them, yep. that information i didn't know all this stuff like how people actually react how people actually get sensitive how you can actually talk to people and then incorporate those philosophies and ideas, you know, within a functional, you know, lens and how the world actually works. I didn't have that at the time. So I study very differently right now. I'm kind of a hard student probably for teachers to deal with in some ways because I'm fairly matter of fact. But I think um, I'm also, I also study for the right reasons and I'm very aware of things. Anyway, long story short, I, I, I'm a huge proponent of, yep. of taking some time, figuring out what you want to do. You did that at the end of, it, of, the, of that process. What to, and I, I also want to commend you for doing that too. A lot of people they they get stuck in the pipeline. There's massive pressures, and I'm so impressed with people that walk away from because those pressures are perceived. They're not real. Yep. You can do anything you want with yep. your life, but a lot of times, you know, your professors, your 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 coworkers, what are you gonna, what are you, where are you gonna go? Yep. And all that creates a pressure around something that doesn't have to have pressure. Why is it pressure? You know, I had a friend who walked away from medical school at Ohio State. He was like a year and a half into it. He said, "This isn't for me," and he transferred to the their MBA program. That was one of the gutsiest things. Yep. You know. You know what was interesting <clears throat> for me, and, and you're right. I mean, I was 24 when I started college. I, had, you know. Talk about living history. I mean, you're in Germany when the fall of the wall occurs, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So live that whole thing. And, and communist bloc countries oh, that will, just yeah. fall apart. Europe was crazy yeah. Yeah. in that 88 to 89, 90 time frame. Go to, you know, Southwest Asia to Saudi Arabia, Iraq, and Kuwait during the first Gulf War. I mean, there, there's a context coming out that as a 24-year-old freshman starting my classes... It was kind of irritating, honestly, watching the engagement or lack thereof of some freshmen. But but it's based on your life experience. It's not that I was any better than anyone else. But I, without going into military and getting GI Bill money, I would have never gone to college. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, that was my blood, sweat, and tears yeah. that went into getting that money. So you have a different value. So like you just mentioned, maybe you're a a pain for some professor. I, I think the lens is different when you view it like, hey, I'm paying for this education and I kind of demand this out of it. I'm I'm not here to be led around like a sheep and you know, I think 
we're often sitting there in college and you're starting off and you're young and you're taking notes. You're like, why am I taking notes? Others are taking notes. What am I taking notes for? I don't know. What's the important stuff? Geez, I don't know that either. But, well, I'll be busy. You know, well, I just copied out the smart kids if I needed to know like what I really needed to know for the test. No, but that's the thing. Like that's one of the things as an older college student you learn. And, and sometimes professors teach treat you like an early 20 year old, like, like, I'm not asking permission, professor. I'm paying for yep. this tuition yep. and I'm an adult. And so this is what I'm doing. And if you need to, you know, work that into your system, that's fine. I understand that. But that the I found the transition of going, you know, your 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 student, you finish your degree, and all of a sudden I went into education. And it was kind of like becoming a parent. When I had my son and I was like, is it okay? Did I walk out of the hospital with him? Like, is it, do I need to? Do I need to ask somebody? Did somebody stamp this? Yeah, like teaching was the same thing. I was like, wait, where's the manual? Like, Who's the person who gives out pamphlets? They really trusting me to be a teacher? Like, I'm the one in charge here. Like, so, but then you grow into that, and then I, I did that for nine years, and then that transition. So I had a call from the university after I, you know, picked up a great teacher mentored me and said, hey, get in your master's degree you know, with a little bit of time under your belt teaching while it's fresh in your mind and before you're out of schooling mode and did that. And that opened the door to this call that came for a, a doctoral program. And it was a no brainer for me and in the wrong way, probably that when I answered that call and said, Hey, we've landed this $10 million grant to get 20 PhDs through in the next three, five years, whatever it was. And, you know, you're the first one we thought of would like to offer you a doctoral fellowship. And I said, uh, thanks for thinking of me, but I'm not interested. <laughs> and there's a pause on the other line. It's like, um, do you understand what we're offering you? And this is like a $100,000 education. And I said, I, I, I'm teaching middle school and I love it. I'm in a community that I love, that's supportive of education, has all the things that I you know, had dreamt of. And I said, but I got a guy that's perfect. So I recommended uh, a guy that was a student teacher who, who ended up going into it. And he ended up being the other voice in one ear while this professor was calling. My own words kind of came back to haunt me because I would always tell, you know, my students about opportunities. When an opportunity comes in life, you need to take it mm -hmm. because you never know what door that's going to open. Absolutely. And if you don't take that opportunity, you just limit yourself in the future what's there. And those words are echoing in my head. And I'm like, oh my God, if I say no to this, I'm such a hypocrite because I can never say that to kids again. Because if I don't do it myself, well, well, who am I to be sharing that with kids? So to throw caution to the wind and say, okay, I'm going to do it, you know, because if I ever go back and echo those words, I say, yeah, I, I lived that and I did that too. So I went, I remember the first day walking on campus and it's a large campus and all of a sudden you go from... So, sorry, so you ended up taking the same fellowship that you declined? I did. Okay. I ended up I ended Okay, up gotcha. So you circled back. And yep. Yeah, so it was, it was, and it was really cool. It was, it was four research universities. Utah State University was the lead, University of Georgia, University of Minnesota, and University of Illinois. Mm -hmm. So there was a, a mini cohort of students, uh, doctoral students, that were at each university. We came together for common courses, blackboard-based online that we would meet with went to each of the universities, learned the research area, uh, cognitive science, um, uh, design thinking, all these that were there. And, and it was really cool, but I remember going to the campus and I went from being Mr. Walrath, the teacher in front of the classroom after nine years, to being the little fish in the big pond. And I'm like, 
I don't have a name. I don't have a title. I'm just one more student. One more know, unique shuffling shot around. Yeah. So, but but <laughs> went through and it was fantastic. <clears throat> and it it brought me to. Uh, we went to Brazil, Rio de Janeiro, for ten years for a, an engineering education conference. To Brisbane, Australia, for another ten days, collaborating with uh, Griffith University over there. And an element I remember is there was a high school. It's called Aviation High. The Brisbane Airport was expanding, and they were building this high school to meet the workforce needs, you know, there. So, you know, takeaways from that, like their culinary arts course. That's crazy to start like that, because most of the time it's just, well, who cares about the building? It's a building, like build a building with classrooms and then put kids in it, and that's the school. But actually having that insight to what the school is actually going to do to prepare people to work. Yep. So all of those, all of those experiences, I mean, that, that helped shape my philosophy and what I ended up bringing here. So at the end, when the, the job offer came, it was kind of weird. Like my gut, I'm like, oh my God, I just went through three years of education, 12 months a year, summer plus everything, full blown. And when I'm all said and done, my gut's telling me the same thing it did when I declined the doctoral fellowship. Like value education, love it, love my experience in college, Tell kids, man, when you go to college, you do a career in college, you do that. That's awesome. That's a fun line. You're not going to make a lot of money, but it's a it's, it's <laughs> well, good the cool thing that. is like you can just kind of keep doubling down. It's like the blackjack table. If you keep on going to school, you just keep on getting student loans. You never have to pay them back. Well, and each one of those, you know, eventually. Well, that's, that's my not a financial advisor, not giving run, financial run advice. Run up that debt and then pay it off later in life when you're working. But to decline that and say, no, my gut's telling me the same thing. Like, I love education, but it's K-12 for me. It's not the university. So when I walked away and I went on my little walkabout in Idaho, then it was time to go back to Wisconsin where I grew up to spend some time with family before making the, the journey north. So I said at the time, my, my buddy needed a, a hand and I probably needed a few bucks too. So I went to work for him. This is the one whose dad owned the overhead garage door business and they kind of specialize there's these huge dairy farms in wisconsin with five eight ten thousand cows and they got you know a lot of overhead doors to put in so there i was in december january 2008 2009 with my knee boots in slopping through cow crap up to my knees working out over and i'm thinking i bet you I'm the only PhD in the country right now that just finished doing what I did and I'm doing this in my transition. But I realized when I went on my walkabout, there wasn't going to be a mid-year thing that just opened to go into. But it was kind of cool. It brought me full circle from where I started growing up on a farm. And the farmers, you know, they really valued that coming because they weren't afraid to go in and get dirty because you're going to get dirty mm -hmm. working in environment and a lot of people don't want anything to do with it right. we're going to go work residential you know we're going to work over some manufacturing business and stay mm -hmm. stay free of all that so I, I got i got reconnected with my roots before saying all right let's go north to alaska and find out what this thing tactic is and what we can do and, and know what awesome. tenure did i have a tenure plan <clears throat> kind of move you know, about that long in the past 10 years or less. Well, you did have a 10-year plan, but it's, it sounds like it had more to do with your values than it had to do with um, anything else. 
Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't the best. Yeah, it wasn't say organizationally based. I was right. I was excited yeah, about the you. opportunity, and then coming and seeing what it was, exploring, learning from it, and then you know really getting to put my footprint on something that however many years of education I had, eight or whatever of college, the takeaway of, you know, the research and the philosophy element, for me, it's always been grounded and practical. So where where does the rubber meet the road? What what Absolutely. can we do with this college degree in, in three years of research? Yeah. So yeah. that the research, you know, so let me throw a really long title because I'm sure it's still buried back in my subconscious somewhere. My my dissertation was Complex Systems in Engineering and Technology Education, a Mixed Methods Study Investigating the Role Software Simulations Serve in Student Learning. And I know I just nailed that. Criminy. Yes. So that's what it Stuck says on the that's what it says on the cover. But it, but so what does that mean? You know, the engineering and technology education was taking engineers, practice engineers, kind of the minds-on approach, and technology education teachers who represented the hands-on, merging those two together. And then what what are the outcomes from? And there were some pretty cool outcomes. And I noted that from whether it's learning and engineering ed conference in, in Brazil or going to Brisbane or Minnesota, Illinois, Georgia, wherever that is. So for me, that was taking 21st century learning tools, software simulations in this case, and bringing it into a setting, you know, in a context that would engage students. So here we have students flying in and spending two weeks with us outside of the vocational training program they sign up for, what do we do with them? What do we give and what do we provide to really open their eyes to possibilities in the world? So when I interviewed with NASA, one of the cool things was, uh, what was that movie, Space Cowboys? Uh, James <laughs> yeah. Garner yeah, yeah, yeah. and who are those old timers over there? I can uh, see their was faces. James Earl Jones, was he in that too? Oh man, Tommy Lee Jones. Tommy Lee Jones, thank you. And uh, I, I see yeah, Sutherland, Donald Sutherland. They're, no, no, no. Wasn't he in there? No, I, I think you're right. I'm sorry. Yeah, their, their autograph pictures were on the wall in this little uh, virtual reality mm -hmm. training lab. So you partner up with someone else. In my case, one of the other individuals interviewing was an Air Force pilot. So he went to the station where effectively, uh, so I got on a VR headset and these VR gloves. So you're just sitting in a stool in the middle of a room. But in these goggles, what you're seeing, he's grabbing you from the International Space Station with a robotic arm from the shuttle, I should say, uh -huh. and taking you out to the International Space Station. So when you get to the International Space Station, you reach up with your hand and you just close it. And here's these handhold like ladder rungs on the outside of the International yeah. Space Station. When you grab it, it turns yellow. So you're sitting there. <clears throat> it's so powerful in your mind that you're floating through space. And it literally feels like you're floating through space. I mean, just full-fledged. What year was this? This is 2003, 15 years ago. So they're probably cutting edge at yeah, now, so yeah, a little ahead yeah. of time. Absolutely. So, but, but the engagement, you know, so in education, you know, where we're, you, student, you're talking about cognition, the, the cognitive domain, students learning, there's also the psychomotor domain, the doing and the effective domain. And that's, that's where I really looked at doing and how do you get kids to, to value and get excited about things of doing that. So here in our student dormitory where we're located right now, it was a brand new facility when it came on. And upstairs, there was a ping pong table that's mm -hmm. sitting right outside here today, yeah. an air hockey table, foosball table, a TV. It was deafening loud. I mean, I'd go up and I'd see 
Elvis parents doing their job with earplugs in and like hating it because it's so loud and stuff. So I remember that. I remember that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That was, and, those were the first shifts I worked out here. You were the boss. Yeah. So th- no. that that was the beginning. It was looking at that and seeing our 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 vision and what we do. Our mission is workforce development training. How can we take and infuse? you know, elements. And around here, you look out the windows here and there's literally in Nome heavy equipment laying everywhere. Yeah, yeah. And I had three conversations, independent conversations with three different people. One was the superintendent of Nome Public Schools. Uh, one was the, the president and CEO of uh, Quark Inc., the, the local native nonprofit. And one was an advisory board member from one of the villages who was also a heavy equipment operator. And all three of them resonated the importance of like doing things like heavy equipment because we have high dropout rates in the region every kid doesn't need to go to college if we can give them a skill if we can turn them on to it so i heard these things and i was down in anchorage at the king career center and saw these caterpillar simulators and sat on one and immediately it's it's the controls which are basically a, a caterpillar like it's an excavator video yeah. game. It's a, it's the yeah. it's the seat that an operator sits in. It's the actual controls. And as soon as they did it, that engaged, okay, psycho motor. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Boom. But it's full size, yeah. and the controls are real. Like yep. not, it's not a joystick. It's not it's a not video game. It's, like it's a seat you sit in. It, it simulates exactly the experience you. Hundred percent. It is the identical controls that's in the the excavator, small wheel loader, large wheel loader, greater dozer. You know, off highway truck, mining truck. So secured funding, which was like one hundred ninety thousand at that time, to bring in eight machines and swapped out. You know, the foosball table, ping pong table, air hockey table, and this is what was cool for me: bringing those in and putting them in that setting. It still represented the same thing. There was an opportunity for kids to gather in a social environment around what are now workforce development training tools, mm-hmm. but they're friendly to kids because kids are in this video gaming interface. And right. it's also interesting in education and where people are, you know, older versus younger, where sometimes there's just a perception. If it's a computer, if it's a simulator, it doesn't have value. It's just mm-hmm. some fluff that's there. Well, to go with this, we purchased an administrative station, had a login for every kid. So when they logged in, they performed these exercises that built them a digital training portfolio. And over time, just like this VR headset that was at NASA in 2003, they upgraded to have a motion-based platform. So now you start the machine up, it does vibrate. Yeah, yeah you, you see it vibrates, gives and, you a little bump. And that was, what, that was maybe about <laughs> five, six years from just a stationary machine to that. But all of a sudden, kids got engaged, reinvigorated, renewed at a whole level. And now... We're just, we're 15 years removed from the NASA thing I mentioned. We're now VR is coming out and we've got our first VR headset and we're working to get through the technical challenge of a network system to bring that on. But it's a 360 degree work environment. You're not looking at one screen or three screens in front of you and seeing wall space. You're looking around just like I did. It was the International Space Station. It was a handhold and I looked up and it was dark and it was stars and it was really cool. And that's what I enjoyed about stepping away and saying, you know, that PhD, that exercise in going to get a PhD wasn't wasted because I'm not doing research and writing papers and doing things. To me, what's exciting is bringing it and applying it and watching students come in and engage. And, and that's, and you, you know from data crunching that I've done and shared, it's been really cool to see what's happened in this region over the Absolutely. last decade with graduation rates that were as low as 
in 2008 begin climbing into the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and now we're getting up there close to where the, the national graduation rate average, I believe I heard it was 84% last year, which is an all-time high, is getting close to that in the population we serve is, I mean, Bering Strait School District is a 99% Alaska Native population. It, it's really some some numbers and data showing it with the population that it's it's kind of unrivaled elsewhere. Yeah, yeah. And we got this. Well, sorry, when you say unrivaled elsewhere, are you talking about American um, Indian and just Alaska Native Indigenous population, of America, Indigenous populations, or our region yep. within Alaska? No, 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 within Alaska. Yeah, because it's it's kind of the you know the story that's not often told. You know, when you're talking dropouts and graduations, and they talk, you know, African American population and Hispanic and Asian. When you you don't often hear a lot about uh, American Indian, Alaska Native, but there's some of the highest dropout rates and lowest graduation rates. I, I want to get into that in a second. I want to touch base on one thing. When when you when you did you interface directly with Caterpillar, the Caterpillar Corporation, to arrange for the situation? Or no, it was indirectly. Or? It was through a vendor initially down in Anchorage at that time, but then okay. the the um, oh, business Simformotion's business that writes the the simulation software for for Caterpillar, and then we've developed a relationship with them through the years where now I can pick up the phone and, and I do, I remember filling out and I thought of that VR element from NASA mm -hmm. and I told them after looking at some of this, you should really go the, the VR route and put your operators into this 360 degree environment and it's been cool to see their, their response. To Has that been something, so sometimes when, when you say to a teenager, go do this, it doesn't matter if it's go eat the candy. Like if you say go do this, if you say it a certain tone, they will not do it. Mm -hmm. But how have you how, how have you framed the simulator experience? You know, that's the one thing that I saw, and I get in Anchorage, the big big city, different environment, whatnot. But where I first saw this and got to participate, it was like in this room, in this building that was away from the school. It was kind of under lock and key, and that was my understanding. Like the opportunity to get at it was when somebody unlocked and provided the opportunity. And, and my philosophy has always been different than that. I want to put it in the environment where it's there for kids to access. So like, you know, our, our dorm is a two-story building and you walk up the stairwell and you make this turn and you come up and it just hits you. And I love taking visitors through because when they come up the stairwell, based on who the visitor is, like if it's kids, you hear this, whoa, like, that's cool. Like, they come like, what is this? Yeah. You know? These children are yeah. not paid actors. Yeah. No, so they're this not. This is a real reaction. It's like, <laughs> this is a video arcade? What is this? Then you'll get, like, older adults, and they'll be like, huh. Hmm. And then you, like, invite them over, and, like, they don't yeah, they, touch the kids. The kids are in. The kids are the all adults. Those, they're all those those the ones adults. to worry about. Yeah. <laughs> they're like, what is this? What is this doing here? This doesn't belong in this yeah. setting. This clearly. This looks fun. This and is, you're a school. I don't yeah. understand. Well, and it looks expensive. <laughs> And you yeah. clearly can't have yeah. this here because you can't trust kids because mm -hmm. they're going to break it. We've had this going on, what, nine years, is it? And we haven't had one instance. Just believe in teaching the kids how to use it, use it appropriately, and then maintaining an adequate level of supervision to ensure they're using it because our junior high kids are very excitable. They all want to get on it. And maybe mm -hmm. they're not the best at waiting for another, but we haven't had an incident. So it's 
It's well, and frankly, we would much rather have them on a simulator than on a real excavator out in the we, dirt. We would, but I also believe <laughs> I'm making that transition. No, I mean, eventually, yeah, yeah, yeah. But putting it where they could access it, but not pushing it on them. So when they come in and we have orientation on day one, that's one of four stations. We bring all students through, let them know they got a login, boom, here it's accessible. Evening, weekends, we'll provide some time. And then, you know, it's, it's kind of like bringing the horse to the water. You can't make mm-hmm. them drink, but it's there. So you bring them. And that's what I like watching in learners and at different levels. Some are excited. They're going to jump in and they're in it from the get-go. Others are more cautious, but they can sit and they can watch over the shoulder of someone who's operating it and they can hit it at that point in time that's right for them. They can ask a student questions if they may otherwise be nervous about asking a teacher mm-hmm. or an adult and it's there. So we've just taken that and we've grown it to bring in boating simulators and flight simulator. We can't bring students on the water and the air because of liability insurance but we can bring them training tools mm. to do this the same thing and welding and just a, a bunch of different areas where that, that's what i like give the kids an opportunity to explore they're you know in their downtime if, if we don't fill the downtime in every minute in a residential program with something that's productive teenagers are going to take an alternate route and we don't always like what that alternate route is and it can be very time consuming to follow you know the the reactive mode so i'm a, I'm a proponent of proactive put things in place give them things to do structure it and and take away you know the the teenage creativity that otherwise is going to find other things that we don't want them to discover absolutely absolutely um it's interesting that as as the program has morphed, I've seen how you've incorporated different tools into the program. Um, it, you, there's not a lot of free time in the evening, um, but it doesn't feel like there isn't free time. That's the thing. You, you've incorporated a bunch of, it seems like you've incorporated a bunch of different things that can help kids on their educational path, but are th- kids, things that kids want to do, like the simulators, and that's framed in such a way that I, I've had so many kids, can I go play on the simulators? They call it going and playing on the simulators. And if you if you talk to heavy equipment operators, like a lot of them really enjoy their job. You know, it's fun to be this little guy on this little seat on this piece of equipment that is moving tons and tons of dirt. It's a really powerful experience. You've done it. Yep. yep. Yeah, it's amazing. And so that's cool to, to frame that in such a way that the kids, they want to do it and they actually want to learn. I, it took me years to understand that how, how I learned because I went to school and I went to more school and then I went to more school and, and I did some more of it. And finally, I started actually going and doing something. <laughs> and, and, um, and I realized the way I learn, I can't, I can't watch a video on welding. Like I've got to weld and then I've yeah. got to have somebody say, Hey, that weld is bird crap. Yeah. So do it this way. And then, then I've got to improve on that and, and not just welding on a plate, but welding something, yep. you know, that I need. And that's what you've incorporated at NACTEC too, is not just doing something for academic sake, but actually applying it as much as possible, as often as possible towards real things yep. that kids will do. Well, I think that go, you go back to what I mentioned about the psychomotor domain doing, but the effective domain. Uh-huh. What, what are we doing? What are we building? Why are we doing it? So like in welding, for example, and it was one of the staff member ideas, let, let's make crab pots. We're right here. We've got, you know, a, 
richest area of any to go through the ice and get crab and what. And how much do crab go for a pound? <laughs> I don't even know because we never buy it, right? No, we don't buy it. Yeah. So it goes out and gets it. And you got fresh crab meat. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, and um, we we rip a live crab apart and we put it in a pot and we eat it about fifteen minutes later. Exactly, right out of the water and right yeah. into the pot. All this know. could be yours, but you don't live in known people. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so I mean, when they can bring a crab pot home and they can feed their family, or they can put that on a plane and fly it up here in back to Nome, mm -hmm. Norton Sound Seafood Products we'll plug. You know, and and get money to support their family. That's all. So we've done that. We've uh, aluminum uh, boat welding. You know, dredge, gold mining dredge. Um, uh, latest that they're working on right now. We're getting into fluid power training, and for the purpose of showing students a simple hydraulic system, we get all this driftwood that comes down the Yukon River and gets dumped into the Bering Sea and blows to our beaches. Well, let's build a log splitter and just show a really simple hydraulic system but what 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 are we able to do you know we're, we're doing design metal fabrication safety welding but for what purpose it's got a there's a context to yeah. it and kids kids relate to that you know i think you look out here we got two driver ed vehicles it's the only driver ed program in our little chunk of our own west virginia of the Bering straits region up here i remember when i was i think in eighth grade Growing up on a farm, you, you drive tractors and it's everything is a stick shift, you know? So I remember, I would think it was third grade when I started driving a tractor and I'd have to step on the clutch with both hands, grab the bottom of the steering wheel and pull to lift, I mean, to push the clutch down, yeah. shift the gear, and then I released my hands on the steering wheel and the clutch lifted me off the ground because I was just a little shaper. That's all I knew how to drive. My parents picked up a 1969 Pontiac Catalina. It was an automatic. And I sat and I looked at that and I watched my mom drive. I'm like, I couldn't figure out how she was driving it because there was no clutch. It was uh -huh. too simple was the issue. Yeah. So I sat and looked. I was like, what is this P? What is this R? What is this N? What yeah. is this D? Yeah, One yeah. day, mom and dad weren't around. I got the keys because I know where they keep them. I'm probably in seventh or eighth grade. I put the keys in. I start it. I'm all right. Well, let's pull down on this R. We're moving backwards. All right. We're headed from our house down by the barn. And then it dawns on me. Our driveway loops around. It's all sand. If I go anywhere, they're going to track me. I better just drop this down into this D. I think that's drive and pull right back. And I parked it and I got out. But it was such a sense of accomplishment because <laughs> I've driven. I think they call it an automatic. I don't know what this is. <laughs> that never left me. So like coming here and knowing how important it is to graduate but to have a driver's license and just being as remote as we are and having villages where there's, there's not a vehicle. It's, yeah. it's four wheelers or. Well, and it doesn't even make sense to have a vehicle. I mean, the, just the seasons, you know, the, the, the villages are so small and most of the villages there's say say Michael and Stevens, there isn't really a road yep. that you can take anywhere else from the village except for to the airport or something. Yeah. So if you have a responsibility to haul people and it's part of your, you know, your job, you know, that's one thing, but yeah, there's no reason to have a vehicle in the villages. Four-wheeler does more than you could possibly do with a truck. But but getting kids ready to graduate and getting As that... A dog sled team. <laughs> yeah, I see a dog <laughs> sled team there, and I was looking out the window the other way, and I think there's another <clears throat> come running up. I'm like, is that a dog? What is out there? Yeah. But, it, but to get kids a license while they're in high school, and you got all these barriers, like you got to fly to Nome, 
you got to get to the DMV. Our Department of Motor Vehicles only has four road tests a week for the entire region. If you can't get one, you get training, you go home. You know, the, the system is set up in a, a lower 48 mentality. It makes sense because that's where the bulk of the population is. You get an instructional permit and you have that for like six months to drive on to get better, to improve your skill set and go get your license. Well, in rural Alaska, you come into a place like MACTEC, you get your instructional permit, you get some training, and we send you back to your village where you're not going to drive yeah, for six or, months. Where you may and then drive a four-wheeler yeah, sometimes. Six months, come in, and we can road test. And we got to do training all over. So it dawned on me, like, you know, our numbers were too low. We got to get more kids a license so that they have workforce opportunities later. And that's why I told the staff, like, we need to do driver ed right here on Gnome Belts campus on the dirt with, with eighth graders. We just need to dangle that carrot and do Because when they do it, it's a confidence builder. You see you can do it. So it's now, it's not so far removed. Like I just ride with someone else. I can do it. It's like swimming. Take them swimming in the morning. They build, mm -hmm. build confidence. And that's what I see is all these little incremental opportunities for students to gain confidence in themselves, do things that otherwise they would never even think were a possibility for them. And now all of a sudden yeah, and they're, they're excited about their education and they're staying in school. There's something to be said also for the the break in between the initial education and then the subsequent retrainings. Re and I'm not sure what the science is behind that. You can probably talk to it more than I, I'm sure you can. But there's something, I, I just think about how I am as a ball player, as a baseball player. And I spent three or four years just away from the game, just thinking about all aspects of the game, thinking about you know my swing and how I move and things like that. And I went back to the game, I'm a much better ball player than I was when I was actively playing you know, every day you know, in the springtime, mm -hmm. you know, during ball season. And I think it's the same with drivers. Like the, the more you can initiate that educational experience, you know, the younger, so they can have time to think about it. How does the steering work? How, and they can actually integrate it into their consciousness. Cause at the end of the day, when you're driving, you're not even thinking about what you're doing. You're just using your unconscious controls to stop the vehicle from hitting another car yep. and signal and everything. That's where you have to get to. Um, how have you found that, that, have you consciously incorporated that into the program? Is that the reason for it? Is because of the retention aspect of it? When when kids have time to actually like digest it? I, I think what we've looked to do is find a way, like that driver ed, for example, you, you mentioned it's, it's a, I remember last year, watching one of our instructors, I walked right across the way here, by the auto shop, and a kid went to take off junior high, first mm -hmm. time in, spins tires, gravel flying, whatnot. And I'm like, haha, you know, really funny. I asked the instructor, I was like, why, why do you, why do you have him do that? And it's like, do what? Burnout. I didn't. She's like, that's the first time the kid's driven. So they just put the floor, they've never stepped on an accelerator before. To make it go, I must step on this thing. Yeah. But the, they said, it, it's, the kid's not doing it through a burnout. They don't know what it's going to do. The second time they drive, okay, they went, all right, I don't need to mash it to go. Mm -hmm. I just gently step on it. So then, yeah, they, they go, they come back. But we, we really have worked to find ways to maximize the training resources we have and the best way so that there's always new kids coming to say that strand and others that have been there can get a little taste of it elsewhere in our program. I, I printed off a sheet right here to show like this, this shows, and I know people listening can't see it, but this is the amount of programs last year that a high school student, the graduating class comes through. So over four years of high school, 
the students that are coming, we see an average of three and a half times. So that's about seven weeks of their high school experience. They've left home, traveled to Nome, and spent with us. And it is, this shows us like 56% of the population we're seeing are coming in to do this. So each one of those successive operators are returning. Yeah, it's building the skill set in an individual area doing that. But we hear from our business industry corporate partners is the greatest value. And, and, and this is such an abstract concept for many people, I imagine, is learning to overcome homesickness. When you come from a small village and you know everyone, leaving to go to a place where you're maybe one of two or three kids from your village, I mean, if a kid's 18 years old and they've never been away from home, I've just watched so many of them just break down and cry. And they literally think their heart is breaking and there's something wrong with them because it hurts that bad. So we've really focused at the junior high level. Um, there's some research that showed that it was 60 to 70% of chronically disengaged students are in the seventh and eighth grade. So if in the seventh and eighth grade, we can reach them and show them in a short four day setting, bring a chaperone in with them, that they can succeed away from home, but show them a whole bunch of different career exploration opportunities to get them interested. We know from looking at our data now over 15 years, those kids we see in junior high come back to us at a rate like 22 to 24% higher than students that we don't see. And the ones that are coming <clears throat> are graduating at a rate 21% higher. What was it? Right here, this shows, so like for Bering Strait School District, the blue chart rate, that shows their graduation rate mm -hmm. for each year from 2010 to 2018. So it averages 68% over those nine years. Their population of students coming through here are averaging 89%. They're graduating at a clip 21% higher than the overall population. And what's really interesting was looking at the dropout. So I looked at what, there was 822 graduates from 2010 to 18, and there were mm -hmm. 276 dropouts. So of the dropouts, fully 83% we did not see a single time in high school. So these kids, other than what very limited career and technical opportunities are there in the village, are not getting out to explore other opportunities. And the larger group that are, that we're seeing three and a half times, you know, seven, seven weeks or more of their high school experience in a residential setting, are graduating at a rate that's, I mean, 89%. That's higher than the national graduation rate. Yeah. Average it's there. Um, so it's it's cool to have, to be an element of a program that's keeping kids engaged in school and excited. I mean, I can see from 10 years of doing this, homesickness is still there, but it's becoming a little less pronounced because we're seeing 80% of the kids now in junior high are coming through. And then and know, it's a shorter program. In junior it's high. a shorter, yeah. That's a, <coughs> two weeks is very different than what three three nights essentially. Four days. Yep, yep. And then in the summertime, we get into four week mm -hmm. trainings. But you kind of have a clientele coming in for that that they've been here, they've been away. But but all of those things are good for students because at the end of the day, when they're now graduated from high school and they're young adults, there's not an opportunity for them in almost all the villages to get any continuing education, vocational training, very limited. They're going to have to leave home to come to a gnome as a regional hub 
or fly, what is it to Anchorage? 538, 539 miles, miles to, yeah. to Anchorage. I mean, a great distance in a bigger urban setting, mm -hmm. you know, that we're not used to. And I, I think a high school students, so we've got a partnership with the school district down there. And I love it because kids can come here, they can get used to living in, in Nome at NACTIC for two weeks, and then we send them to our partner program in Anchorage, and they can get urban living skills that you just can't get in Nome. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't have a traffic light in Nome. Mm -hmm. We yeah, don't yeah. have a divided highway. All of these things that we don't have, they can get in Anchorage. And I remember talking to a student went down, and I recommended that program. I was like, you guys need a driver ed program. You have the, the Anchorage DMV. You have more capacity to get kids a license than anywhere. And we had some kids from uh, Savunga and Gamble, St. Lawrence Island, that went down there. And I knew they were doing driver ed, and I was excited for it. And I asked them, how was it? And this poor girl, she started crying. She said, I, I, I broke down. I got scared. I couldn't. There's, there's, there's so much. Yeah, I was thinking, so much like, there, there really is. Yeah. And I was like, well, where did they have you driving? Oh, it was right close. It was a... A little like this round, it was like a cul-de-sac, she was like, <laughs> but there were, there were trees and there were houses and there were cars parked. It wasn't, oh, it wasn't, it oh, wasn't the sweetheart. interstate traffic. It oh. was just, it was a visual yeah. overload because we don't have trees yeah. in no, We don't have these barriers to prevent us from seeing a long way. She couldn't see, I don't know, call it claustrophobic behind the wheel or whatever, but she just stopped and started crying and said, I can't. I can't do it. I can't oh, drive wow. here. There's too much. Yeah. You know? So think of that. I mean, there's a concept that most people can, probably can't even relate to. No, no, It's just what you live in and you don't think of it. You don't know that. But bring a kid from, you know, a, a St. Lawrence Island remote community into an entirely different setting. And it presents, you know. Well, up until a few obstacles. years ago, they didn't, They all they had was the pea gravel, you know, out of Gamble. And so I remember walking back there when I first started working up here, you know, state and just thinking, why doesn't everybody have these monster thighs? Cause it, you know, you're, you sink four inches, five inches in pea gravel every step, yep. you know, and it's, you know, mile to the school and it's mile across the, you know, to the other side. And yeah. And they, now they have roads, you know, they have, yep. actually have paved roads now, which is awesome. They were working on that project for a while. Anyway, so yeah, it's a it's a concept that people don't understand. I'm what I'm looking at it, and I'm trying to. Well, I'm not trying to make sense of it. I understand what you're trying to say. I'm trying to understand how to put this out there. So it's interesting, and I'm just going to start by prefacing um, some of the importance of this has to do with the application for potential for potentially the indigenous populations in the world. We live in a world where. To, to interface with the modern economy, there's certain skills that you need to have. And so, and there's difficulty with the way contact happened. That's the, the, the problem with the way colonization was done. And, um, and I don't want to get into all of that, but that being said, as I've been working on my master's in social work, I've, I've done a lot of research on different papers of um, indigenous populations and what I'm finding is that there's not a lot of stuff in in Alaska but we do there's a lot of the same considerations and um, and issues like high dropout rates high alcoholism things like that in the ind indigenous populations in Australia we see the same things in Greenland we see similar things in Norway with some of their indigenous populations mm -hmm. um, and we see it here and so a lot of the and in the lower 48 with uh, Native Americans and um, and there, there's so many complex parts to the issue. I feel like I'm finally starting to kind of understand some of it. 
<laughs> you know. Um, but you came in here 10 years ago to a program and, I, and I'm looking at the numbers. Um, so if we go back to fiscal year 10, the BSSD graduation rate was 48%. That means in uh, Bering Strait School District, which comprises the area of West Virginia in our Norton Sound region that you described, 50% essentially of students in the school district were graduating. And in that year, 81% of NACTEC kid, kids that attended at least one, three. Yeah, it's the same. So those are Bering Strait School District students attended NACTEC. So okay. in 2010, you can look and see, they averaged, the graduates averaged 2.9 programs throughout their four years of high school. Okay, yeah, yeah, so yeah. we saw them almost mm -hmm. six weeks, as opposed to, it's a small sample size of dropouts, yeah, gotcha. but they were averaging two. So the, the, the dropouts come to far fewer programs than those graduating. So you identified oh, gotcha. 2010. Mm -hmm. So actually 2009-10 uh, represents a bridge. It was 48% was a graduation rate for Bering Strait School District mm -hmm. two years in a row. Okay. The five years prior to that, so in 2008, it was 32%. It averaged 38 39%. For the Jeez. five years prior, so imagine so one that. third of kids are graduating correct, high school. Correct. Correct. Yeah, oh 60 percent, sixty plus are not graduating, are dropping out, or not graduating on time. So, sorry, that so eighty. That was from two thousand. From when we started, so okay, our first right. year was two thousand three uh -huh. four, and that's as far back as our data goes. Mm -hmm. So looking at the data from our startup years, the first five years. The graduation rate average was, I think it was 38.5% across those five years. Jeez. So it leveled in 2009-10 at 48% for those two years. And then somewhere elsewhere, I have a chart that shows all of a sudden our enrollment takes off and grows. So at the beginning, our staff, and we've got a staff member here that was there at the beginning 15 years ago. He noted they had to recruit hard. They had to go out, you know... Um, residential programs do not have a wonderful, rich history yeah, yeah. in Alaska with the Alaska with the boarding schools. Right, right. Well, boarding. they stopped right around 1980, um, and that's that was one thing that where my mind went. That's yeah. why I asked about those dates yeah. to clarify because in 1980 you have you know that stopping, and and there's a whole generation of kids that had that experience. What boarding schools were was uh, essentially the forced relocation of Native Alaskan children to centralized boarding schools. Um, Known Belt was a boarding school, right? Co correct. Post-secondary, uh, this was built as a vocational okay. post-secondary program in the late 60s. Yeah, but some kids went as far away as like Wrangell. And um, there were boarding schools set up all over Alaska. Um, and Native Alaskan kids were not educated in their villages. They were, they were forced every school year to go to a boarding school. And there's mixed reviews. I've read the research on it. Um, sometimes it, they all get they all get a bad rap, and it wasn't all bad, but some of the bad was horrible, and um, and it, it disenfranchised a whole generation from the educational process. And anyway, that being said, um, how much do you think of what's going on here with uh, what you're showing me, and 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 the obvious buy-in that you're getting with our region. Um, how much do you think was it had to do with um, disenfranchisement of the educational system? You know, that 33%, that's one in three kids. Yeah. 
And that's not just one in three kids because kids go to school when their parents want them to go to school. That's how that works. And no matter what a parent says, that's how that works. And um, so that's one in three families, not just kids. They're saying, we would like you to do this. And two out of three kids and families are saying, no way, no way. You know, we don't see this as a value. Um, what has your role been in, have you, have you just extended a good program or is that something that you've done outreach for, or is that something, has that even been a consideration or the thing I think that we, that we do well, I mean, to me, why this is succeeding, it's a variable term boarding school. It's not the full year. It's not required to go out, but it grew from local interest. It was the Bering Strait School District School Board and the Known Public Schools School Board that came together. It was the people of the region saying, hey, we need something else for our children as an opportunity for vocational education. So beginning with that at the grassroots, and I think that's from Department of Education and others looking at the success that's been here. It's not a top-down model the Department of Education from Juno says, hey, let's try and do this. It, it was families here saying, we want our kids to have a little something more that's here. And we've been able to bring 25 plus vocational programs that would otherwise not be there, but because of partnership, huge, huge. It was just so unique. The, to me, that was one of the concepts I had a hard time latching onto. It was like, how is this thing funded? We got this chunk of Department of Labor dollars and we've got some Department of Education, but we really got to go out and raise a bunch of our own and, and get business and industry and, and corporate buy-in. And, and I think right now we're probably- Who are some running, of the people that are, that are funding what this has become, at, this, the success story that this has become? Look at, you know, locally, uh, there, there's a state of Alaska education tax credit program that's been very helpful to us. So Barron Straits Native Corporation, uh, the local uh, Native Corp has supported us for, for nine years. Norton Sound Economic Development Corporation, mm -hmm. the, the, the EDC has as well. Um, in Nome, Sitnesauk Native Corporation, the, the fishing industry, Pollock uh, Conservation Cooperative, which is American Seafoods and Glacier Fish Company, um, Trident Seafood, Star, Starbound LLC, there's been so many of them. Wells Fargo, ConocoPhillips, Shell Exploration, Alaska Airlines. My problem when I start naming them is you're going to leave people off, you know, yeah, from yeah, bigger yeah, corporate yeah. to smaller, you know, the the Arctic Native Brotherhood, charitable trust. I mean, there's, there's so many of them that have come on. Uh, Salt Chuck, which is a transportation-related sector, was interested in developing a transition program with us from from high school to post-secondary. We've built that. That's going on five years now and have been successful, not only getting kids to graduate, but continuing on to, to Avtec, the state's post-secondary vocational training center, and, and successfully completing six-month or year-long certified, certificated programs there, you know, leading to, to opportunities. So there's there's so many different partners that come in different and, and locally the uh, University of Alaska Fairbanks Northwest Campus offering courses for dual credit, getting kids an opportunity to earn a college credit. It's one of those things. Once again, the, the value of it when you see you can do it, you're more apt to say, okay, well maybe I can continue on to college or, or post secondary. And Norris Sound Health Corporation is the largest employer in our region. They have 
you know, in a region of 10,000 people, they hire 700 or 750, something like that. Um, they have adjuncts that teach courses for us. We bring students over there, junior high, to a lunch and learn program. They get to talk to people in the industry. So they, it's a two-way relationship. They kind of get to try on the kids early, mm -hmm. and the kids get to try them on and see if that might be something that they want to do. And then just through that process in healthcare alone, we've been able to, to assist students you know, so they go through an intro to health field course to see if they're interested in it. But by the time they're a senior, right after they graduate, they can go one of two routes. The community health aides, this is another foreign concept. They represent healthcare in rural Alaska. You know, you don't have doctors and PAs out in the villages. You have these community health aides that are developed. So that, so that means people don't get sick and don't need medical No, care. that's not true at all. <laughs> it's just, you know, the, the, the training mechanism to get them there is done locally. And it's like an apprenticeship model. They come in for three weeks for what's called a pre-session training at Nome, and they may go back and work for, I don't even know, nine months a year, come in for session one. There's these four sessions they go through, and I think it's an average of five or six years to rise up to a community health practitioner. Mm -hmm. So that's somebody that wants to live in the village and be in, in healthcare, but somebody who wants to come to Nome and work as a, a certified uh, nursing aide. They can go through CNA training and then they just need to make that commitment to leave the village, to move to Nome and, and reside here. But we try doing all those things so when kids graduate, they don't have to wait through the summer months and go off to college or wait. Like, let's cut that transition time from walk the stage to graduate, come into training next week, three or four weeks, five weeks later, complete training. And when you're 18, boom, you're employed and, and you're into that. Yeah. Um, I saw you looking at your phone, and I know we've gone a little bit over. You and I can talk forever. Yep. So, yep. <laughs> um, how are you doing on time? I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine. Okay. My kids are off in their first college course in a, a kids ceramic course at Northwest Campus today. Okay. With their grandmother's taking care of them. Okay. Okay. And we're good. You're not having mm -hmm. to like burn. Because I know you She's had an interesting Monopoly game, and maybe yeah. there's some collateral damage from No, no, no. We're burning. all good. She said it was okay. She was picking them up, so okay. they haven't burned any family bridges. <laughs> all right, cool. Thank you. Um, well, I'm looking at this, and um, as we know, one of the fundamental you know, tenets of research is that correlation doesn't necessarily mean causation. And so I'm looking at the numbers, and I'm looking at the BSSD graduation rate. And hats off to them. I've um, interfaced with a lot of teachers over the years in all of the villages. I've been out to all of them now. And, um, and their, their hearts are in the right place. I, I can't think of hardly any. I can think of a couple of bad eggs. But the other 99% are just really, really solid, good-hearted people that are, that are trying to do the best they can. And so I, I look at, you know, the graduation rate. So just so, you know, our listeners at home are look, looking at it, if this was a stock chart, I would absolutely invest in this, whatever company this was. <laughs> We're going from 50% graduation rate in the school district in fiscal year 10 to 75% in fiscal year 18. And 18 dropped a little bit from 17, which was a high of 85% uh, graduation rate. Um and then we also look at the NACTEC rate. That's uh, that's the students that actually yeah. attended a session. So, so what's interesting about that NACTEC rate? This actually came about uh, from the Department of Education. Last, so they were looking at Perkins data. So, Carl Perkins funding is federal funding for career and technical education. Okay. So they've got data Alaska wide and na nationwide. They look at, but they looked at the Alaska data, and I think this was school years eleven to fourteen. Mm -hmm. And what they found across all of Alaska. 
was that students were that were in career CTE concentrators, career and technical education concentrators, which is two or more courses in a strand, so healthcare, construction, whatever that is, graduated at a rate 22% higher than students not involved in CTE education or CTE pathways. So that actually caused that. That's where I looked at our data. So I wonder, I wonder what we'll find. Now I don't have the same, and, and it would it would just take us a lot to get to that because we're a little office to find yeah, yeah. the pathways comparison. So I went the route of saying how many programs they go through. So last mm -hmm. year's graduates went through three and a half two week programs. So they mm -hmm. were with us for for seven weeks, but it was amazing because it, it took a long time to crunch the data and look through all graduates and dropouts. 1,098 uh, is our sample size uh, over nine years. And the difference we found was what? 21%. Yeah. Bering Strait School District averages 68% graduation rate. The BSSD, Bering Strait School District students coming through NACTEC, graduated at an 89% rate. It, 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 it mirrors yeah. what's happening. So it's... You know, so you're right, you know, correlation uh, does not indicate causation. And that's not what we're saying. But our data that we have, our data set locally, mirrors that of what we find at the state level. So, mm -hmm. so while you can't prove that, the element that I present to principals lies on these two pie graphs right here that mm -hmm. show the students. Which are, which are much easier to analyze. Yes, right? yeah, because <laughs> it's a big red slice and a yeah, little it's, blue it's slice. It's a really simple pie graph. <laughs> There's two numbers on it. Yep. So what, what are the percentage of dropouts? So, so now let's look at the opposite because something we may hear from a principal at a site is, I can't afford to send a kid to NACTEC because they're going to be out of school for two weeks. They're going to fall behind on their studies, and they are at risk of dropping out. So now we can show them. Look at you can't afford not to exactly send your kids exactly eighty three percent of the kids that you are not sending that are dropping out. We do not see a single time. And over here are the graduates. So and actually, I thought this would be higher than fifty six percent. But then we start looking at students. You know, in, in the villages, that you know how the sports season works. Mm -hmm. We have wrestling early because we need those wrestlers on the basketball team to feel the basketball team in the spring. Right. You get those kids that are in all of the sports. They're in the Native Youth Olympics. They're the youth leaders. Mm -hmm. that and all of these sporting there. activities, you travel for all of them. You travel, yeah. usually you travel by small plane. Yeah. So it, it's like... Being a professional athlete in rural Alaska. So we, we know we're not We drove a seeing. bus to baseball games when I was a kid. Yeah. yeah. Well, we just took youth wrestlers up to, to Cotsby. And what was that? I think I was figuring it was probably like eighteen or 21000 for three plane loads. That you yeah. you got to raise all the money to uh -huh. take elementary kids for a weekend yeah. wrestling tournament. Foreign yeah. concept, once again. You don't well, and, and, and it doesn't just come from local corporations. I mean, I, I've seen these kids doing bake sales and door-to-door -door stuff. And, I mean, the community is so generous. That's one thing I love about Gnome is, like, people are, the, the people that are working, they're doing pretty good, and they're willing to give back, and we take care of our own. That's one thing. There's a sense of community. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and which brings us full circle back to what all of this is about. And, and that's one thing. I mean, year one, you hadn't built those relationships. You didn't have these results. Um, year two, you didn't have these relationships or those results. And slowly but surely, uh, 
NACTEC has become a force in the region and the state. All it, of a sudden, it, people are looking at NACTEC of what, what's happening up there. It, it truly is. There was, uh, while I had the little wrestlers up to Kotzebue last weekend, um, Governor Walker had meeting down in Anchorage, and I was invited by the Department of Education, Department of Labor Commissioner to come present on some of this data, and they were very interested to see what is the difference, you know, in kids attending NACTEC in our region that aren't. And it was actually the Department of Education um, that sent, there was a research group from Clemson University that came up here three years ago, I think it was, in 2015. Um, so on the U.S. Department of Education website, there's a rural dropout prevention project. So if you search for rural dropout prevention project, it's looking at, I believe, 14 or 15 Western states. And it just, it looks at what are the challenges, there's some challenges in true and real in, in rural Alaska that need to become overcome to present all kids with some sort of equitable opportunity in education. So Department of Education, when those folks come up, recommended of two things in the state that they come up and spend a week at NACTEC and see what we do. So they've got a, a video that's on Alaska and there's probably about a 12 minute clip or so that represents what we do. And what was cool for me is I just stepped back and said, here's, here's who we are, here's what we do. I did not have a conversation with our teachers. I did not have a conversation with our house parents. And I did not have a conversation with our students other than what we needed to do to get a release for those to be informed of what we were doing. But when they produced this video and played it, I looked at it, I'm like, oh my, I think we've arrived at that point because not only are the teachers and the house parents were our former students, but our students are echoing what we do. So it, it must be resonating just through the actions. And, and we know it's, I mean, we're running at nearly 100% capacity this mm -hmm. year um, where we had to go recruit heavily in the early years to get kids involved. The last training program, we only have 26 beds for students to come in. So 26 fills the program. We had 55 students apply from in region. So I shared that with the kids the other night when we had a, a capstone culinary arts dinner experience. It's like, you're here. Just realize there's another student and someone on top of that in the region who couldn't come in mm -hmm. because you got selected. So it's becoming increasingly competitive, which tells me that as we reach that saturation point at 100%, the only place to go is to grow, is to build another wing on the building or, or two more wings. If we've got double the amount of students that are interested in coming in, and this is keeping kids in school and preventing them from dropping out, putting them on a path to graduate and getting them to post-secondary training and work, well then we need to, we need to grow our staff, we need to grow our building, we need to serve more students. It's yeah. good, yeah. good for our region. And I think it's one of those things that the state will look at and see, you know, education, it, you know, unfortunately it takes a while, you know, to see where did we start, where are we at, and what's that pathway to continue to say, okay, here's something that's worked and then identify why is it working? Mm -hmm. And I think that's when we realize it's not top down, <clears throat> it's, it's bottom up. So it's, it's exposing others to it, encouraging it, but then, there's got to be a, a financial mechanism of support to make it go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I appreciate you saying it like that. Um, that's the thing. I, with When families are disenfranchised, you know, from the educational process, it's not that I, I think everybody knows that we need to learn to grow. Everybody knows that. And, um, and so that, that's awesome that, that it, it, I think it takes a partnership. One thing that in my previous experience working for the state is – 
I was involved in a lot of decisions that were made top down and I knew they were not good for the community because they didn't involve that community buy-in and investment. And, um, and so I, I was just left with a very bad, bad taste in my mouth with the whole model, you know? And, and I said to myself, if I, if I go back to work in social work, I'm going to work with the tribes because that's, that's where the change is going to come from. It's going to come from, you know, from the people themselves, yeah. not, not from someone instituting something. And so that's the cool thing about the model that has been initiated. You know, that's the NACTEC model. It's what do we want here? And it's a community discussion. It, that, and it's based on continual feedback. You know, um, we have a local advisory board meeting every year. We bring in reps from all the villages. Yeah. End of every training program, the students are surveyed on their training program. Were you certified? Were you satisfied with your course of training? Yes or no and why? In a series of questions. The, the best ones to learn from are the students. They're the ones that are coming in. They're giving their time. There's there's a value that they expect and get, you know. Well, you're the teacher. In. You're the teacher. Yeah, but you know yeah, what? You, you interviewed Kevin yesterday. And one of the things <laughs> Kevin brought, and I don't know if he talked about this, that was really cool, that on the first day of every program, we sat down and established common expectations. The students have their expectations of the staff and the staff have their expectations of the student. I like that because where where do we usually begin in education? By And this goes back to our conversation with the freshmen in college. Mm -hmm. You come in, you know, if you're older, you've earned it, you see it differently and you demand something, it's getting students used to that, to value like, hey, you signed up, you applied to come in. Mm -hmm. You had to write an essay. You had to get a staff referral. Okay, now you're here. What do you want of it? Because if you don't speak up and say what you want, well, now you're part of a system that is top down mm -hmm. because now the teachers will dictate it. Yeah. Here's your opportunity to have your voice heard. And then when things happen, and they're going to happen because we deal with humans. It's the nature of Well, and also action. you're dealing with kids that are probably coming from a, a, a different educational experience, which is more of an institutional approach to it and, and traditional institutional approach to education to a, a little bit different approach that you have here. So kids, you know, you can't just show up in the seat and sit down and get educated, you yeah, know, get spoon fed yeah. the baby education, you know, yeah. <laughs> baby food. Like people, kids here, the whole approach, I mean, there's certain information you have to learn, but we're going to make it as dynamic as possible, make it as hands-on as possible. And if, if you're hesitating because of, you know, of, you know, anxiety or something, that's one thing. We'll give you your space as a student, but you can't not do anything you can't just hang back yep. and not get anything out of this <laughs> no and that and that's why the the application is so powerful that's usually our starting point huh? we can go grab that and there's what what why do you want to come to nap tech what do you hope to get out of it is one of the things what challenge do you foresee that may occur and how will you overcome it and mm -hmm. kids know themselves well most often what they said is a challenge they're going to face is what they're facing so their own words to say how they're going to overcome it. Just sitting and reading that, they're like, oh, man, they actually read my application. I said I was going to do that. It's a refresher to them of what they had committed to do. But the other part of it, when you have the staff referral and somebody says something kind about you and somebody says give this kid an opportunity because of, mm -hmm. those two things for many tend to be, you know, even if they're, they're homesick and they're shutting down and they want to be there, I'll just sit and I'll read those words because it's letting the kid know, no, somebody out there believes in me and they took time to put that on paper and here's what I said I would do. So it's 
that's pretty powerful. But it, that's all part, you know, of who we are and what we do is making the kids part of that. NAC Tech, I always say, I don't, I don't want the kids ever to think that NAC Tech is something that happens to them. They're applying, they're coming here, they're part of it. And it's true, you sit and watch, you know, you've been around it. The different groups come through, the dynamic, the energy of that group will often take us where we go. Mm -hmm. The best we can do is just facilitate and keep the boundaries there to, mm -hmm. to keep it going in a direction that we hope for. It doesn't always go that way, but that's all right. We learn from that too. Absolutely. Um, I wanted to ask a, a couple of final questions. Um, and NACTEC speaks for itself. I mean, the numbers are, are incredible. And um, in a world that needs some good news, you've got some great news. So it's, and it's been such an honor to work with your program. I mean, anytime you give me an email or a call, I do whatever I can to help your program. And, and, and I've talked to a lot of people in the community and they feel the same way. Tracy McGarry who used to work out here and um, she feels the same way. That's, that's why um, in my previous role, I was able to get as much flexibility there. Just, yep. You know, Tracy knows what you're doing. So, and um, anyway, that being said, so the, the product speaks for itself. I think NACTEC is a very dynamic program. You're obviously a consummate professional about it, um, as is Kevin, you know, who I spoke with yesterday. What I'm curious about is when do you feel like you hit your stride? You obviously did a massive amount of preparation. You're not just a guy that went to, got a bachelor's degree and went into their first job. And there's a place for that. I'm not discounting that. You know, you got to start somewhere, but you you got a bachelor's degree and you worked on your PhD and then you, you also spent some time in some very dynamic you know geopolitical places at some very dynamic times and then you ended up in Nome Alaska talk about your preparation how long it took to hit your stride here at NACTEC wow well I think coming in I remember my first program um, because I I I was new to Alaska. I was new to the concept of a residential program. So I had to put my faith in others that were there, our staff um, that had delivered programs for six years prior to me getting there. And I, I said, I'm, I'm a very, it, it's tough for me to stand back and say, okay, I got to trust in this because I, when I have my hand on it, when I have my footprint, I'm, I'm more comfortable. Uh -huh. So that was new and different to me. I said, okay, I have to accept that I'm the outsider that's here and there's a learning curve that I will need to face. But I mentioned I'm a very gut feel person. And I right before the students arrived for the very first training program and I got out of my office and I leaned on the door of my administrative assistant and I said, I have a gut feel that something is going to go terribly wrong. I just haven't been as involved as what I think I should. And I know that she said, you, you just need to trust, you know, staff that's there. They've prepped for this as they have elsewhere. It so happened in the office that we're sitting in right here as students improvs. There was a student homesick, as I mentioned, is it's, it can be debilitating for students. And a student came in from a community who had not traveled before, had a hard time. And, and rather than express that to verbalize to someone, and before we could collect meds, part of an intake process, had swallowed a whole bunch of meds. I was off to a school board meeting. Oh yes, yeah, so I went home and I was making baked beans or something on the stovetop and I got a, a call from a staff member. So we just had a suicide attempt. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. 
students have been here literally like eight hours, 10 hours. So I rushed to, to the hospital and this is actually my first interaction with the student. You know, so you've, you've got no rapport, you've got no background, they don't know who you are by title alone doesn't give you anything to enter. So here I was, you know, calling a parent in a remote community, acting on that parent's behalf or the student that's in the hospital. And it was like, like just the way I envisioned it did not go at all. And, and to me, that was like, okay, I, I have got to, I got to step up and I got to put my foot print on this early just so, you know, things like this can occur, that there's processes you can put in place mm -hmm. to prevent that. But the first year for me, I, it, it was common. I, I, the laptop was on my bed. I slept by it and that ding tone when the email came in, I would check. So I'm sure it was 14, 16 hour days. And that's not healthy. That's not healthy for any professional in any setting. And I quickly realized, you know, I'm going to burn myself up, you know, if I don't. So, but frankly, yeah. it's necessary. I don't know any entrepreneur that started something new that is actually successful that hasn't put in that time. Yeah. That's always the price that's paid at the beginning of it. Well, and, and, and that first year was just, that was an eye opener of how, how different it was for me coming from lower 40 into a setting that, you know, I just, I don't well, know how you prepare for that. No, no, no. Yeah, I mean, it's super dynamic up here. That's one of the reasons I've stuck around as long as I have. Yeah, yeah. but but that's also yeah. what I love about it is yeah. the the opportunity. Like I said, the, the relationships that we build and the partnerships mm -hmm. is what makes it so dynamic. So to, to answer your question, is probably it was beyond three years, and we started building some things, and probably closer to four or five years that I started getting comfortable with it. But one of the things I realized was. I was just, I was, I was overwhelmed. I mean, mm -hmm. trying to run the operations, um, the day-to-day -day and seeking funding and writing grants and legislative stuff in Juno and running programs at the same time. You can't be in Anchorage or Fairbanks or Juno while the program's occurring in Nome and be able to do what's in the best interest of students. So I, I went to my advisory board, government board, and we, we sought funding that we got to, to bring on a program coordinator. And I also traveled and I saw their models. Uh, New Illinois, the, the regional training center in Bethel. You know, I saw they were set up and they had a, an executive director, a, a programs director, an operations director. And it dawned on me like, okay, yeah, I'm doing all three of those jobs. <laughs> and it's no wonder that I'm burning myself uh, out. Yeah. Bringing the program coordinator on, which Kevin... You interviewed yesterday as a second in a row. We've been very fortunate. Two wonderful program coordinators, great educators. Well, I remember Nathan. Great I was with Nathan nice too. Yeah, he was a great guy. And that I think that was key right there because I said we need we need that administrative piece to be there as a day to day, face to face with the students that they're comfortable with, and they, they were they've both been fantastic in that role that was just missing. So when kids would come to me, it was like going to the principal's office, like you're in trouble. Mm -hmm. And any time that that's, if that's just the thought that's embedded, the reaction most often is not going to be positive because yeah. it's already embedded in the kid, which direction this isn't going. And that's not what we want. We don't want it to be punitive. Uh -huh. We want to help shape. We want to be proactive. We don't want to be mm -hmm. reactive. So I think we are in, is this the sixth year? Perhaps it's the seventh year. With the program. So yeah, probably about four four years, but that role, 
uh, that position was really important for our organization to grow and, and have that. It's been of great value, and I think we've just taken off and, and gone from there. Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting that it correlates with when that role was created and, and incorporated into the organization. We live in a world where we're reassessing a lot of our bureaucracies. I think appropriately, you know, there's a lot of our bureaucracy, big bureaucracies that need to need to change. But I think there's a, a thought process that just thinks like, we'll throw a grenade in the system, and, you know, start over. And when you look at how com- how complex our systems are, that's obviously not what we need to do. No. But change of an organization is incredibly difficult as well. And um, anyway, I... I I, I would have put it about four or five years, you know, the time that it takes to understand a, a community, a culture, an organization, to actually understand it enough to start implementing a yep. system. You know, I would have put it about that. So that's interesting. Yeah. That, well, good. That I guess we're right. about that. Yeah, I've never been asked that question. I've never had to reflect on that. So you took me walking through, but I would rather confidently say right now that that was a key of bringing that position on and... Um, it's been very positive for our organization. I could see, I could see in that yeah. relationship between the students and the program. I miss it a little bit, you know, yeah. because of where my role's at. And but it, it's become over time, it's increasingly difficult to get funding for a program. Whereas I looked at our early years when we started up, and our budget was about one and a quarter million dollars, and there were three, an average of three point five funding sources to support that budget. Our budget now is about 1.6 million, so that's grown over 15 years. Mm-hmm. But we have 17 to 18 funding sources, so the sources of funding keep getting smaller. But you still have the legwork and the equal investment of time and energy to getting that funding, to maintaining those relationships, to giving feedback, data of this form, pictures, success stories mm-hmm. of of kids that have continued on to success. Um, it's just kind of the nature of where we are in the times right now. So I don't know, hopefully for Alaska, hopefully we're going to swing out of the current, you know, we've been lagging. We tend to lag the U.S. in recession. Mm-hmm. When the recession's hitting the U.S., we're not there. And then when they're swinging out of it, we're going into it. So hopefully we're swinging our way out of that and some dollars come back because the dollars have gotten very, very tight. And um, it, it makes us, you know, we got to refine what we do to get better with less dollars. But at the end of the day, in our region, it costs about 500 bucks for a round trip airline ticket for a student to come in. You know, so that's yeah, a big deal. We're going to need about a quarter million dollars of just budget of flying students in. But I want to come back and just connect the yeah, time because we're in dropout mm-hmm. on that dropout rate. And looked at there was a research study out of Northeastern University, I believe, out of Boston that looked at the cost of a dropout. And I believe I got the number right, it was $292,000 or $282,000 is what they attributed as a cost of a dropout. So that may be a cost of incarceration rates, lower income earnings, or social less, services, because they're, they're yep. much more likely to get involved in less the that's paid into taxes because you're earning a lower wage, all those things. Police officers so responding I, to. I took whatever. that and this dropout chart to our legislators to say, okay, obviously. If graduation rates have been tracking from 32% in 2008 to 75% tracking up, dropouts that you know are going to be the inverse relationship is going to occur. 
they're going to be decreasing. So the blue on here just represents nine through 12th grade dropout, mm -hmm. which I look at as not very accurate because some of those kids are just moving from different villages. The red are 12th grade dropouts. So probably a greater indication of students who are dropping out. Well, if we take, say, the average of $292,000 for a dropout, and we had 42 seniors drop out in 2008, 42 to drop out in 2009, and we're down to 11 or 12 now. It's off the top of my head. Whatever it was when I ran those numbers, mm -hmm. it was a difference of like $13 million per graduating class. Now, it's it's a lifetime. They're lifetime earnings. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in each class, if you're making that difference of 12, 13, $14 million per graduating class, Okay, now let's look at the investment in education. Yes, it is expensive for that $500 round trip airline ticket to come in. But let's say a kid but how goes through. Not spend that? Yeah, yeah, so the kid that goes through three and a half programs, I think I run the numbers on that. It was around like $3,000 a student. So in high school, that's what, nine, that's $10,500. So on average, $10,500 through four years of education was spent on a kid coming into CTE. But we know from the Perkins data and our own, they're graduating at a rate 21% higher. So it's, where are you going to spend the dollars? Do you, and that's that whole proactive reaction. Well, and, and, and that's the thing. Like right now, it's, it's, it's never been politically sexy to maintain stuff. Like a politician gets way, they are perceived street cred by building a bridge rather than maintaining a bridge. When you see yep. workmen like changing nuts and bolts or whatever happens to maintain a bridge, <laughs> they, they, they don't put a sign up that says, hey, we maintained the bridge, yep. you know, because that's just what they're supposed to do. But when they build a new highway, Somebody's there's a sign there yeah. that says, yeah, yeah, brought to you by whoever. Yeah. Anyway, but I, and that's a bigger discussion. That's a, actually something I'm going to be touching on. Um, I've been developing a, a lecture about um, subsistence and how um, the nature of it is spiritual and that it's something that we need to look at more in our society. And it doesn't have to do necessarily just with food sourcing. That has to do with just how we feel in our hearts. And, um, and it has to do with prevention. It has to yep. do with knowing that, you know, a, a dollar, a dose of prevention is worth a yep. pound of cure. There was a there was a commercial back in the seventies. I don't remember if it was Midas or who it was, but I've used this line with legislators because uh -huh. because it, it is it's dollar. You if you don't invest here, yeah, as a legislator, you're going to be gone twenty years from now when these costs are incurred. So you're worried about this budget now. But it was the you can pay me now. Or you can pay me later. You know, the yeah. guy goes in to see the mechanic and they look at the vehicle and and at the end it was it was expensive. Well, so it, and it's it. asinine, like we're building a jail when we could allocate those funds. And granted, in the in the in the interim, like the right now, we need there's there's real people actually breaking real laws. And that, that's how people end up with jail. I'm not gonna argue the judicial system, but that being said, there's that interim of 10 years when, you know, the the effects of the, the dollars allocated towards education are actually taking effect. And so there's a little bit of an investment, but it seems like such a stupid price not to pay yeah. you know, for what the very clear quantitative data yeah, is. Yeah, I've never read the research, but I've heard it cited a number of times about the a number of jails being built based on the reading scores at third grade or something like that. Like there's a correlation of where they're at at that time in second and third grade of where we're going to yeah. end up and what they'll need for jail space.
you know, so that's why, and then that was the other area, well, you know, while my heart lies in what I do right here at mm-hmm. junior high and high school career and technical education, when I've gone before, like some of these legislative panels and talked about their recommendations, mine have always, I've circled back to early childhood education, mm-hmm. that it begins with that investment in early childhood preparing for kindergarten, first and second grade, because if they're not prepared there, we know and we see it you're it's a downstream effect that we're going to see all the way through junior high Mm -hmm. high school and impact going off from the so you gotta you gotta invest early and you gotta have the programs there to support early that's why i like also living in no such a rich community and there's so many opportunities absolutely summer reading programs sports enrichment programs ceramics for kids you know it's a little community located way the heck out here but there really are an op- a lot of opportunities for youth to get involved. That's not necessarily true, you know, with um, all of those opportunities in, in the villages. Great people, great programs trying to make it happen, but you're just, you're limited because of the resources and amount of folks. So where we can supplement that with programs like NACTEC, that's the betterment for, for all the kids of the region. Absolutely. <clears throat> Doug, I believe in what you're doing. I have, much, I have so much respect for, I mean, anybody that just figures out what they're good at and does it. <laughs> and, and so there's a general respect I have for you, but personally, I, I have so much respect for you. Thanks for um, helping me move forward in the directions that I needed to just by being, by association with what your program is you, doing. It's you, awesome. you're, you're one of those people, and you know, because I've made outreach to you, that you, you connect with kids and you help inspire them. The more folks we have like that. The better it can all come with our small little short teaching team that we have to do it so i thank you for all those times you've come in in different places of need and also for introducing me to the to the world of podcasts this is new for me oh man there are so many great podcasts if if you're listening to music just stop <laughs> the <laughs> podcast there's uh, this is a way you can learn on the go yeah, so good. Cool. Awesome. I got Thanks for well. being it. Thanks yeah. for being a guest. You're excellent. Yep. I got to run and get some hot dog buns now for dinner. Before we're off to a Girl Scout meeting. All right. Man. Well, thank you, Doug. All right. Appreciate cool. your time. Yep. Thank you. <clears throat> Thanks for the. Uh,